You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast. Self-education and ultra-learning as a means to reach your financial goals and more with Scott Young. T-minus 10 seconds. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. If you didn't know, so let's just say this is the first time you're listening to this podcast. The mere fact that you're listening now makes you a journeyer. So welcome. You're on the journey to financial freedom, to financial independence and living your best life. And if you're a returning listener and journeyer, thanks so much for coming back. And if you're listening to this in real time, so the podcast drops new episodes every Wednesday morning. So if you're listening to this in real time, meaning when it just comes out because you're subscribed and you're on top of things, then you're listening to this the week of Thanksgiving. And if you celebrate American Thanksgiving, I hope you are having a good time and it's not super stressful. I know how sometimes that can be hanging and being with family. But hopefully you are spending time with loved ones and people that care about you and that you care about. And I also realize that sometimes around these times, it's not always positive for a lot of people. So if that's the case, just know I am here for you. I'm hoping that you have a good time in terms of taking care of yourself. With that, I'm really excited to bring you the conversation that I had with Scott Young, who wrote the book Ultra Learning. So you're going to hear us talk about it. I think that education is the means and way for freedom for everyone and particularly people of color, particularly minorities and black people. And it's one of those things where I often think about my background and my family's background and our history. And I know like the reason why I am where I am today is it starts like before me. It starts like generations before me. But really like my mom coming to this country with literally nothing at 19 years old and she wanted more for herself and more for me. She knew education was the way. And so she went back to school. She got her education. She stressed for me to get an education. But it just doesn't stop there. And there's this really good quote from Jim Rohn who says, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. So I truly believe that formal education, the education we get in the school system, and kind of like the normal average education we get is like just, it's a stepping stone. But to go beyond what we've seen or what our generations before us have done, we need to take self-education seriously. We need to become ultra learners. And Scott talks about that in this book. And I really do believe that that is the thing that separates people who stay stuck and cannot ascend through their financial issues or just generational issues of um, money to people who actually make it through and make it out, even if it's just providing like that next step for the next generation. So being in control, fully in control of your education. And this is not to say, yes, College and cost and all that stuff can be a barrier, obviously. But as you'll hear in Scott's talk and interview, that a lot of the stuff that he learned and he did was free, right? It takes just a level of 
wanting to learn and you're going to hear all about it. So I'm really excited because I do think that this is going to be a tool that you need in your toolkit to reach any goal that you have and how wonderful to know that it's all up to you. You have the complete power to choose what you learn and then use what you're learning to to help you accelerate, you know, your career growth, your income growth and all the the things that we need in order to reach our financial dreams and best life. Now, before we get into the episode, so if you want the episode show notes, you're like, wow, that sound, it sounded interested. I wanted to know more. I need to like make sure I'm in t- on top of things. Go to the episode show notes. So this is episode 128. So episode 128. So you can go to com slash episode 128 to get episode show notes. That's where you'll get more information about Scott, where to get his book and just me, right? So one of the things I always say is that if you want to keep in touch with what's going on with Journey to Launch, me, the podcast, just everything you need to get on the newsletter list. I send a newsletter out every week to my list and really like the list gets more updated information than the podcast because I'm able to basically write out and just update people on the list earlier than when sometimes podcast episodes get recorded. Sometimes I record intros and outros and and interviews like weeks and months ahead. So If you really want up-to-date resources, up-to-date information, you should check out and go to journeytolaunch.com and there you'll be able to opt in and to any one of, I have a few free resources you can actually use. But if you just want to opt into the newsletter, go to journeytolaunch.com slash join. Also, now you can literally listen to this podcast anywhere, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on your Android podcast player, YouTube, like literally anywhere. So if you want to share this with your family and friends, which is like the best way for this podcast to grow. So thank you everyone who's been doing that. Then you could do that by sending them like to my social media or to anywhere that you're currently listening to this podcast. And I'm at Journey to Launch on social media. So if you hear something and something sticks out to you, at me on social media, like take a screenshot or write out what you thought really stood out and share it with me. I love seeing you doing that. And most importantly, share it with other people in your network on your social media feed so that they know they should be listening to the Journey to Launch podcast. Now, without further ado, let's hop into this conversation with Scott. Hey, Journeyers, I'm really excited to bring you this conversation that I'm about to have that we are about to have with Scott Young. Hi, Scott. Oh, it's great to be here. Hey. So here's what, here's the deal with Scott, why I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation. So I have been reading Scott's book, Ultra Learning, and the subtext of it is master hard skills, outsmart the competition and accelerate your career. Now, come on, like that's what we all want to do, right? So this book, Scott, is really good. And I want you to talk to journeyers. That's the people who listen to my podcast and who are on this journey to financial freedom I want us to distill the information in here so that they can see what you basically learned. It seems like for your whole life, what you've been doing is that you can learn literally anything you want to, like literally anything, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also not even just about learning like a subject, but also getting better at the things that you're doing right now or something that you're maybe struggling with. So I think learning is just at the sort of fundamental level, what it is to mean to be getting better at things. And so the more you can work on that process, the better results you'll have in every area of your life. Right. Ultra learning. Let's first talk about what that actually means. Sure. 
the book kind of, and, and I sort of talk about in the opening chapter that it started by meeting people who were just doing kind of incredible things. People like Benny Lewis, who speaks 10 plus languages, people like Eric Barone, who basically learned all the skills of video game development and ended up selling tens of millions of copies of his game. People like Tristan de Montebello, who in seven months went from near zero public speaking experience to being a world champion in public speaking. So it started by meeting people who were doing these very interesting projects where they got really good at something in, you know, a comparably short time frame or just to a degree that most people are not able to do. And then from that, it kind of, I wanted to distill it into something that's a little bit simpler than just a list of examples. So the thing that's in common with all of them is that they pursue self-directed learning projects. So self-directed is in contrast to when we typically think about learning. It's, you know, you go to school, there's a teacher there, they tell you exactly what to do, you follow the lessons. And sometimes you learn a bunch of things that maybe aren't that useful, or maybe aren't really that aligned with your goals. Whereas if you're doing a self-directed learning project, the idea is, okay, I really want to get good at X and I'm going to design a path to do that. So that that would be the first part. And then the second part that I really wanted to focus on in this book is people who really take the idea of what does it mean to do that well and try to optimize all of those things. And as I talk about later in the book, there's a number of different research findings that all kind of align in this general direction that often what works well for learning is not usually the default action. It's not the most easiest or most comfortable thing. And so if you are deliberate about it, you can actually get better results, but it's probably not going to just happen by chance. And so the other quality of these people is that they were all very focused on how do I optimize and maximize the skill progression, the the learning that I'm doing, and not just, you know, ah, I'll just play around with this and maybe I'll get somewhere eventually. And I think that's very important if we're looking at learning for your career or business, because obviously who wants to waste a lot of time learning something and then not have it actually impact their life? Right, right. And then to also give it just further context of what you've been able to do. So you've been able to do yourself some fascinating things. And I want you to kind of talk through how you applied ultra learning to your life. So one of the things is that you've been able to get an MIT degree without going to MIT. So I want you to talk through that a bit. And then you were able to not speak English for a year. So you had a year without English project where you learn different languages. So I want you to kind of go through those two things, because I think that sets the stage of wait a second, these are the kind of things that can be done when you set your mind and you immerse yourself in this? Sure, sure. So the first project uh, was something I called the MIT Challenge. And, and to be clear, it's not that I got an MIT degree, but what I was aiming for was to see if it would be possible to get what you learn in an MIT degree. So to get the kind of MIT education without going to MIT, without having to move my life over to Massachusetts, without having to try to get accepted into one of the most exclusive schools in the world. Or pay that that about. <laughs> yeah, or pay, or pay, really, yeah. That too, that's not a small part. And so the MIT Challenge was a project I did in 2011. And the basic idea was that MIT actually puts a lot of their resources online for free. So if you go to MIT OpenCourseWare, there are actual classes that MIT students took, and there's real materials from them. And so around that time, I just graduated from university, and I was thinking about going back to school to study computer science. And... Uh, I, you know, I just didn't really want to go back to school. I didn't want to spend four years, didn't want to shell out tuition, didn't want to delay my life to, you know, start working in the world. But I wanted to have these skills. I wanted to be able to program computers. I wanted to be able to understand technology and these kinds of things. I thought that was going to be very important for my uh, career. And it is. And so I decided that what I was 
going to do is I was looking online and seeing these classes is I was wondering, has anyone ever tried to do something where they just piece together what would be in a degree, but they just use these materials? And so that project, I tried to pass the final exams and do the programming projects. So it's a little bit more reduced than everything an MIT student would do. But you'll probably admit that if you can pass the exams and do the programming projects, you've probably learned the substantial amount of the the curriculum, if not most of it. And so the process of this was to go through this sort of self-selected curriculum. And uh, instead of doing it over four years, I also did it over 12 months. So that was my first big project. And I talk about it in the book and, and sort of some of the precursors to, you know, why I was thinking I wanted to do that. And then a couple of years later, I did another project, this time with a friend. And we went to four countries, Spain, Brazil, China and South Korea to learn languages And the idea of that project was that when we would land in each country, we would not speak in English to each other or to anyone else who would meet, you know, barring unusual or exceptional circumstances. And so that meant that we were basically speaking the language almost all of the time. And we were able to progress a lot more quickly than I think most people would kind of naively expect is possible when learning a language that, you know, things that you would expect to require a couple years in school before you could you know, carry on a conversation with someone, make friends, socialize, go on dates, these kinds of things we were doing after about a month or two. And so I think this is, uh, you know, part of what I'm trying to show with these projects and, and really with this book of compiling all these stories is just that not necessarily that you have to go to that extreme, but just that that extreme exists and that there's a lot more possibility to learn difficult things that are very useful for your life in ways that maybe you wouldn't expect. And so my hope is not necessarily that people are going to do the MIT challenge or stop speaking English for a year, but use these maybe as examples for, you know, maybe you would like to learn programming, maybe you would like to learn a bit of Spanish, and how can you use these sort of extreme examples to structure your efforts to actually get results and not just, you know, waste seven or eight months trying to learn something and then find out that it didn't actually make an impact. Here's what I find fascinating about the MIT challenge in particular, because I feel like for the traveling one, you know, someone may say, and I think maybe for all of them, they may say this, which we'll get into, like the barriers or things that come up to say, well, I can't do that, like time and money. But with the MIT, and I think you said this in the book, is that a lot of schools actually put their curriculums online, right? Or the lessons. And that's accessible, right? As long as you have internet and the know-how to access that information to know it's there, anyone can possibly do this. Yeah, no, definitely. And you know, and it's not even just actual school classes. Obviously, there's a lot of things that maybe you feel a little bit intimidated by trying to take math classes from MIT. But there's also Khan Academy. So even if you felt like, well, actually, I don't know whether I learned high school math that well. Khan Academy has, you know, videos going up to college level math of every single thing that you could study. So it's not the case that you need to be some kind of genius, I think, as well to take advantage of this. And and I will I will say just to be clear, like part of my sort of style or strategy in, in writing this book was to pick out sort of extreme examples because I think they often embody the principles that I want to discuss. But the principles are accessible. So I, I, even if you know you don't feel like you can go travel somewhere for a year, the same things that make that kind of project work are the things that will make it work if you do it, even if you're only spending, let's say, ten minutes a day, or even if you can't travel, or even if you can't you know necessarily take on all the classes in a degree, maybe you could take on one class. And so I think the attitude that I want to try to impart upon people is not the idea that, well, if you can't do this extreme thing, then you should just not even look at it, but use them as 
well, what are the what are the mechanisms? What are the things that are going underneath the surface that allow those to work? And so I, I actually spend most of the book discussing these different nine principles of of ultra learning. And I think that if you were to take these principles and apply them to whatever fits in your life, you'll be able to get better results. Again, even if you're not spending, let's say, 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So there's like two motivations and whys that people would maybe think that they should pursue this. And you talk about this and one is like intrinsic, right? Like there's just a thing you're curious about. There's no real like reason maybe for using it for a career or for advancement for money, but it's just like something you maybe just something pulls you to it and you want to learn about it. And then the other reason someone may to do it is like an instrumental, like it will help them make more money or establish themselves like what you say on the book cover, accelerate your career or do something else. Yeah. I know that decision is going to be different for everyone, but do you find that depending on the why it helps figure out if someone like really sticks to something or what's been your experience with all the research and even in your own experience of when people really like pick something and stick to it and see it through the end? Yeah. So from my experience, I find that the best projects kind of have a mix of both. So they have something that you're excited about personally, but you also, you know, you can see the potential benefit of it. And I think the reason why good projects require both is because it, you're not really actually the same person when you pursue your projects. You are constantly changing your mood and your thought patterns. And and so to actually go through a long project and see it to the finish line, it's not just the person who dreams up the project who has to finish it, but all the various versions of yourself in the future all have to kind of conspire together to make it happen. And so I think the more ways you can justify something, the easier it is to stick to it. And so, for instance, if you were thinking about a project and you're getting really excited about, you know what, I'd really like to, well, let's let's take learning programming as an example, especially because it's quite popular as a career change right now. You know, maybe you're thinking in your head, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of my job. I feel kind of stuck. I feel like I'm not really making the progress I want. I'm, you know, I'm making savings, but it's not going anywhere. And I want to consider a career transition, maybe into doing something like programming. Now, it, this might also be sort of a very in, uh, instrumental motive. This might be something that, you know, I really want to learn this because I want the outcome. But then you might also get interested in programming itself. You might also be interested, you know what, I want to be one of those people that, you know, you can type things into the computer and make magic happen. And so I think good projects have that mix of both motives. The extra step or what I talk about in the book is that when you're doing instrumental projects, you're doing projects to try to achieve a goal, it often helps to do a little bit of extra research as well to try to plan out how does that skill translate into making the impact that you want. Because I think sometimes people will just pick some skill, oh, I'm going to learn this, and then they only find out after they've learned it that, oh, actually, that's not what is really helpful in this particular situation. I should have learned something else instead, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think if you're going to do that, I would try to have some conversation with people who are programming or they're relatively new programmers and ask them questions about like what kinds of programming languages are in demand or how did they get their job or these kinds of things. And those can give you some guidance into where you should focus your project so that you can get the results with the, the you know, least amount of waste. Right. And you talk about that. Like, so if you're planning a project that to try and use for the most part in the beginning, not when it starts to become a huge project, but like this is say a 10% rule. So use actually 10% of the expected learning to set up like a learning schedule, which does that also include like the pre-work of interviewing people who possibly have that, um, what you want to accomplish and do? Yeah, that does. So basically this idea is the first principle of ultra learning, meta learning, which essentially just means learning how to learn something. And this is particularly important if you're taking on your own project, because 
one of the challenges of learning something is that you don't also know that much about the subject, obviously, otherwise you'd already know it. And so as a result, it can often be difficult to plan a project like this because it's a little bit like trying to plan a project to go on a very specific trip in a location, but you don't know what anything is there. You don't have any idea what you're going to discover. And so in that case, obviously, you know, you need to actually while you're moving around in the country, make decisions on the spot and explore. But it really helps to have a map. And so that's what I think is the first step in doing any of these projects is to create that map to decide what it is that you want to learn and what would be involved in really learning it well. So again, to take our programming example, if you were to look at, okay, I want to get a job as an intro programmer. Now you could have some of those interviews and you could sort of stake out what would be required. Okay, I need to have these skills. I'm going to focus on this language. I'm going to use these resources. And planning out that map makes it a much, much easier prospect to actually get good at something. Because for a lot of us, you know, if we don't actually have that, it's going to be impossible to go forward. So I, I generally recommend spending more time on this than people typically do. There's actually even a small chunk of literature on adult education where people study how adults and other people who are outside of school systems uh, learn things. And one of the findings is that people don't do much planning. They basically just go with whatever opportunities around them. And so I, I stress this because I think it is something that's underrepresented. And also, I feel that for a lot of projects, if you can get the right structure, meaning that you make the right kind of foundational assumptions when you're going into the project, it'll be much, much better off. And, and you know, my language learning project, I think, is the perfect example of that because the decision to not speak English wasn't just to be intense, but also because making that decision from the beginning set it up so that when we would meet people, they would all be speaking the language that we were trying to practice. And so sometimes these decisions that you make about how you're going to pursue your project, how you structure it, are really are the difference between success and failure. So yes, I, I do advocate for like a 10% rule where if you're going to spend, let's say, 100 hours on a project, it's probably good to spend about 10 planning it. Right. And this reminds me of just like getting directions and putting in a GPS, right? Like, so sometimes you just like want to start driving. You just want to get to where you want to go. You're impatient and you're like, well, I don't want to like actually put the coordinates in and like do all that. That's going to waste time. I'd rather just go. But realizing that you can start that process, that drive, and then think you have it figured out, but it will cost you so much more time in the long run versus to take that time up front to figure out where you're going, to put it in the map, to overlook the map. And so it just reminds me of that. And the other thing I want to like make clear, so this is more tangible for people listening, is projects, like what that means. So you brought up some good examples. So projects meaning like if you have a career that has nothing maybe to do with programming at all, but you have an interest in it, you think that's something you want to do. A project would be then learning this system or computer programming, right? Another thing could be, let's just say you are starting a side hustle or you want to do something on the side to complement what you're already doing. And it's about like maybe starting, I don't know, you want to open up a restaurant or some sort of business, some sort of service business. It would be then interviewing and talking to people who have successful businesses and maybe not, not successful, maybe talking to people who it didn't work for, right? That would probably help. So it's not just like this abstract, just a project, but these are projects that you're taking on, whether intrinsic or for reasons that are going to like benefit you in a certain way, like financially or career wise that you're taking on to expand your possibilities. I want people to think about it in that way. And I think even just structuring things in terms of a project. So even just having your mindset be about working on concrete projects is often extremely helpful because a lot of the things that were like, oh, you know, I'd really like to learn that. 
they're kind of vague, amorphous ambitions that they don't really suggest any to-do items. They're just sort of in the back of your head being like, you know what, it would be nice to play guitar. That's not the same as a project. A project is like, okay, over the next three months, I'm going to spend this amount of time. I'm going to use these resources. I'm going to try to do this and this in order to learn guitar. And unsurprisingly, the latter tends to be much more successful when we talk about actually getting results. And so if you've been thinking about something that you've wanted to do in your own life, I think that's a useful framing for it. Whether it's, you know, maybe you want to learn public speaking, maybe you want to get better at writing, maybe you want to, you know, improve your leadership skills. Again, it's one thing to say, I want to have better listening skills, let's say. It's another thing to say, I'm going to have a concrete project over the next 60 days to do X, Y, and Z in order to improve my listening skills. Already, the person doing the latter is going to be improving at a much faster, more consistent pace than the person who just has this vague ambition, even before we take into account you know, all the different principles of learning that we are talking about in this book. Right, right. And what I do like about so some of the examples as I was reading them, and then even your example, I'm like, wow, that is extreme. But what I do like to like show and what I think helps and this is helped me along my journey is that that type of extremeness, even if it's not something I would do, it just expands my reality of what's possible. Because if I'm like, wow, this guy could virtually get the MIT education or degree, and he did it on his own, or he immersed himself for a year without speaking English, then I think on my scale, maybe it is as big as that. There's something I could do, right? If I put my mind to it, but it's more of, okay, what am I actually thinking I can't do in my life? That's possible because, you know, like this, these are things people are actually doing. Yeah. You know what? It's funny because I'll give my personal example with this and why I like to focus on on these kinds of projects and stories, because my first experience trying to learn a language was not doing it this way, right? My first experience trying to learn a language was trying to learn French. I was a student on exchange uh, in university. I was an exchange in France for a year. And I was trying to learn French and I was trying to do it the way most people do, you know, just trying to practice as much as possible, trying to learn as much as possible. And I was struggling with it. And at the time, I didn't have a lot of role models. I didn't have a lot of like concrete examples. And so in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, maybe a year just isn't enough time to do this. And since then, since meeting people like Benny Lewis, who, you know, has a very modestly titled website called Fluent in Three Months, and then meeting other people who have a similar kind of habit of like going somewhere for three to six months and being able to fluently converse in the language after, I think seeing those examples it made me realize, oh, no, this is something that people do. Like, you can do this if you want to. And so I don't want to suggest that, you know, everyone who learns a language needs to do it in that time frame. Obviously not. You know, you've got to do what works for you. But at the same time, I think being exposed to possibilities allows you to rethink your approach. Because if you know that there's people out there who are, you know, again, like you maybe been learning French for six months and you, you know, you feel feel like you can barely order food at a restaurant, never mind having a, you know, an ad whole hour long conversation with someone. And to know that there's people who are doing that after one month or after, you know, six weeks, that is itself kind of a motivator in terms of, okay, how can I rethink this process? Because definitely, there's a lot more possible than maybe I'm achieving. Right. And then but I have to say this too, for because what can come up for someone listening can be like, well, you know what, Scott probably has like an exceptional like he's probably really smart, or like he has a predisposition to learning, or I'm not good at language or so there's things that will come up. And I think they're valid. I think they're valid pushback, right? Like, there's some people who just pick up things faster who have the capacity to learn in a different way or have the time, right? So, you know, I don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of money 
to like take a year off or, you know, maybe I'm a single mom and I do, you know, I don't have the luxury of uh, like hours and hours a day. So what do you say to that to people who kind of that's their first reaction to all this? Well, first of all, they're not wrong. I think everyone is in a different position. So if we had the requirement that in order to learn from someone, they need to be exactly the same as you, we would be limiting ourselves to learning from very few people. At the same time, I agree with that condition. Sometimes the conditions of your life or, or who you are will prevent you from doing exactly the same thing that you've seen someone else do. And so this is why in the book, I try to spend the bulk of the time focusing on principles because the principles really are universal. They're based on kind of how the mind works, how we actually uh, are able to learn. And so even if, again, this specific example, well, I can't really do that exactly. If you can see why it works, you can, again, as I said earlier, like work it into your schedule. So if maybe doing, you know, all the classes of this MIT program is out of your out of your question, maybe you could just do a couple that will teach you enough programming skills to you know, give you a foot in the door for that first job or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so let's talk about some of those principles, because I think, like you said, these are things that can be applied universally, regardless of where you currently are. Um, So the first one we kind of touched upon earlier, it's like meta learning. So you need to like, learn how to learn. So like learn, like in the context of whatever you're learning, the best way to do that thing and learn that thing and kind of map out that, right? What are some other key ones that you feel like people should understand or know about before they start? Yeah. So as I said, there's nine of them, but a couple of them that I think are very important, which I'll try to cover briefly in the, in the show here today is that one of them, I think, which a lot of people, I guess there's, Sometimes people understand it intuitively, but I think it often trips a lot of people up. And this is this idea of directness. And basically, the idea of directness is drawing on a centuries old literature that shows that people are bad at something known as transfer. So transfer is when you learn something in one context, and then you have to apply it in a different context. So let's say you learn something in a classroom, and then you have to go out and apply it in real life. And it turns out there's study after study showing that when you teach people something in one context, in this learning context, uh, very often they don't apply it to what, you know, investigators would think are quite obvious applications. So some examples of that is one of my favorite ones is economic students did not do better on questions of economic reasoning than non-economics majors in one study. In another study, taking a high school psychology class did not transfer to doing better at a college level psychology class or even things like honors level physics students who graduated from physics were not able to do problems that just differed even superficially from the ones that they encountered in school. And this is quite you know, this is quite alarming because these are these aren't like, you know, huge gaps. I'm not talking about, oh, okay, well, you know, you took one business class and now you should be able to be, you know, Bill Gates or something like that. I'm not even talking about that extreme. I'm talking about things where you would expect that something you learned in situation A would apply to situation B. And it turns out that what the brain learns when it learns things is quite specific, at least in the beginning, and that it tends to stay welded to the context and situations that we learn it in. And so the implication of this is that if you want to actually learn to acquire real skills, you want to actually be able to perform in the world, you're not just there to just, you know, pass a test and get a credential, that in this case, what you need to be doing is looking at what are the situations that you're likely going to be using the skill in and do some practice in a situation that is either the same or quite similar to the situation that you're actually looking to practice in. And if you can do that, you're going to be able to improve much, much faster than you will if you do a lot of practice in a situation that's actually quite different. 
And so my my clear example of where this applies and where this fails typically is with language learning, that many, many of us will spend a lot of time doing things that aren't actually speaking to people, that aren't actually having real communication interactions with people long before, you know, we'll just spend hours and hours and hours doing this without actually having any real practice. And so it's no surprise that when you've spent, you know, eight months on Duolingo, you can't actually have a conversation with someone because you've never had a conversation with someone before. And so the key to directness is how can you uh, expose yourself to these real situations much earlier than I think uh, most people would in, in kind of a more traditional education approach. Yeah, and I, I do want to spend a little time here because you say in the book, it's like education's dirty little secret because the thing about it is, right, like, a lot of people are just like taking classes and learning just to pass a test, just to get the degree, just to get the job, right? And there's no apps like absorbing the information and learning to apply it to where it actually like helps you succeed once you get to that job. And I'm the similar, like for me, school, like sitting in a classroom was not useless. I did it because it got me a degree and then it helped me get me my job. But like literally like everything I do, I learn as I do it, like while I'm doing it. And I feel like so many people get stuck here and this is for anyone listening, especially if you have kids and or you're in, in college or you have, you know, people in college. It's this thing of, you know, spending all this money to pay for a degree that, you know, it's just like kind of just, OK, it gets you in the door. But what you learned in that degree doesn't necessarily help you accelerate or get you to the next level unless you have this deep desire to actually apply like the what you should know, right? So maybe what you didn't learn in school, but like the new, because by the time sometimes we even leave school, there's a new system, there's a new way to do it. The company doesn't even use that program or what you were taught. So it's really interesting that you really have to take your your education back in your own hands, no matter where you are. So whether you're just starting out education wise or have kids, but even as an adult, that you can't rely on what you were taught in school for anything. You have this self self education is really the key to to making kind of the life you want. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, the example that I give in the the chapter for this one here is a friend of mine, Vad Jaswal, when he had first graduated from architecture school, he couldn't get a job. It was like, and not just couldn't get a job. I mean, like he interviewed at every, like he sent his resume to every single firm. He was showing up unannounced, like begging for a job. He was really, really hustling to try to get a job, could not get hired in his field. And he spent about uh, probably several months, a little bit less, maybe four months, uh, working on a project to specifically build the skills that they practice at the firm, redesigned his portfolio, went back, and he got two job offers immediately. And I think this, to me, is kind of encapsulates the the sort of what, I, what you mentioned, this kind of dirty secret of education. But this idea that a lot of firms know that what he learned in school is not going to be helpful to them. And that is quite alarming. You know, we think about school as, oh, well, you know, I went to school to learn some things. I should be good at X, Y, and Z, but maybe not, you know, and it depends on the program and on the school. So I don't want to say that all education is universally bad, but it's certainly the case that a lot of schools spend a lot of time teaching things that are not useful or when they teach you things that maybe are useful, they teach them in a way that they won't transfer. And because they won't transfer, it's going to be something that, well, you remember that from school, but it never makes an impact, never makes touchdown in your real life. And so directness is such an important principle. And I think it's one that's quite subtle, that if you make mistakes here, it can really impact your ability to acquire real skills. 
Mm-hmm. And I was, as I was reading that particular section, I like, I always relate things back to money and how people learn about money. And, you know, I know there's a big push for education, like financial education in the school system, which I think is amazing. So like starting financial literacy, like giving people the building blocks earlier is great. But I often think like for a lot of people, it's not necessarily a knowledge problem, like in terms of what they should be doing with their money. Like some of us were not taught the basics, right? So, but we set that aside. And now that we're a little bit older, we, we know what we should be doing. I find that like the problem comes into applying it to our actual lives. So even if you sit and you read about like what a budget is and that you should spend less than you earn and all this stuff, right? This like basic stuff that you should be doing. A lot of people don't do that. And so I feel like a lot of it too is because when it comes to applying it to their life and their situation, like that's the disconnect. That's when things get a little muddled or a little hard because everything is not transferring the same way, right? Like every situation and the best way for someone to adapt a budget or spending plan for them is different. I have a little example that I give in the book because what you're bringing up is exactly right. There's definitely a disconnect between the things we know and our behavior and the habits that we actually have. And I think there's nowhere more true of that when it comes to finance that there are people who, you know, will say, oh, yeah, I know I'm supposed to save for retirement, but I but I'm not doing it right now. And that does happen. But I think even the transfer issue is even more deep than that, that it often reflects areas where people don't even realize that the thing that they know in one area of life actually tells you that the thing you're doing right now you shouldn't be doing. So my 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 favorite example of this is I was uh, this was when I was in university. I was going to uh, I was spending some time with some actuaries. So actuaries are people who basically work with statistics. They're the people who calculate insurance and things like that. So they figure out what's the likelihood of you getting in an accident and therefore what your insurance premium should be, et cetera, et cetera. And I was talking to them and they were all getting excited about some upcoming trip to a casino. And I said, well, you know, is it harder to enjoy going to a casino because, you know, of all the all the statistics that you studied. And they just they just looked at me with blank faces, like kind of like, well, what does that have to do with the, going to the casino? And it was just to me, like you you spend all this time learning statistics and you still think about like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in with the same kind of superstitions that motivate most people to go to the casino of, oh, you know, I'm feeling lucky today and this is my day and this kind of thing. You know, that's a really simple example, but think about, you know, your investing behavior or your money management behavior, or all those things that, you know, you learn something in one context and then you go right ahead and do the opposite. So maybe you learn in some context, well, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to, you know, the, the idea of investing is that you should buy low and sell high. And then you hear someone saying, well, everyone's been buying this. It's been rising up for the last six months. I've got to get in right now or I'm going to miss out. And it's like, well, no, that's that's probably the wrong time to invest in something Yeah. when everyone's excited about it. Now, not to say that you need to do that kind of active investing, but it's just to show that link between something you learn in one area may, you know, it may not even come to your mind to apply it to a situation. And this really is the kind of risk of transfer of reading a bunch of books or taking classes and then not having those sort of that insight or foresight to link it into the things that you actually want to make use of. Yeah. In my personal life, knowing people and then just interviewing certain people, they're smart in a lot of areas or they know how to make money. Maybe they actually worked in finance for their company. But when it came to transferring that kind of organization and execution and for their own personal benefit and finances, it didn't transfer over. So, I mean, there's some deeper stuff going on there, why that happens for some people. But it's interesting because, yeah, I like that actuary example. 
So one of the things that you talk a lot about in the book is just that, and I like this because I think life like is like a big classroom or like, you know, there's learning just not stop once you just like leave like college or mandatory education, right? Like this should be an ongoing self-learning. Like this quote, I forgot who said it, but they say, education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Something where, you know, like the deeper that you go um, beyond what you're supposed to know, like that's where you're able to grow. And we, you talk about the middle class a bit, like there's no middle or if you're in the middle, that's not a good place to be. And so this is why ultra learning is so important for everyone to understand and apply into different areas in their life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is actually um, research that was done by uh, MIT economist, David Autor. And Basically, we've all been hearing on the news that income inequality is rising in North America and that this has some kind of worrying, you know, not only economic implications, but even political implications. And this idea of income inequality is true. However, as he showed that in the period, I think it was after the 1980s, there was actually a little bit of a shift. And what has been happening is that it's not just that the entire income spectrum. So if you imagine like, you know, people lined up on some sort of axis of how much money they're making, it's not that it's just getting stretched out across the board. Instead, there's actually two effects that it's getting stretched out at the top and it's getting actually squeezed down at the bottom. And what that means is essentially the way we can think about it is that it's a little bit like the people in the middle. Those are the people that are either becoming richer or they're becoming poorer. And this this idea leads to economist Tyler Cowen saying average is over. Basically, the middle, which we've long expected most people in our society to live at, to, you know, get a middle class income and to be in the middle spectrum, that's what's eroding. And so there's going to be people who are earning more and more income in this kind of ever increasing, ever accelerating race to the top. And there's also going to be people who are going to fall out and they're going to go to the bottom. And the main sort of motivators of this trend or at least according to Professor Otter, are the uh, computerization and technologization of work are resulting in the fact that we used to have a lot of factory workers. Now, either those factories are in other countries or they have robots that are doing the assembly and, and putting things together. We used to have bookkeepers. Now we have QuickBooks. We used to have travel agents. Now we have websites that will automatically book your flights for you. And so there's a lot of jobs that were what would be called middle skilled, these kind of white collar jobs that didn't require too, too much training and education, and you could just do them the whole your whole life and earn a comfortable living. Those are the ones that are disappearing. And it's not that there aren't jobs replacing them. It's not that, you know, there's some absence or shortage of jobs available overall, that they're gone and now the computers have taken them and there's nothing for humans to do. But rather, the jobs that replace them tend to be one of two kinds. They tend to be either high-skilled jobs, meaning that instead of being the, you know, the travel agent and the person booking the flights, now you're the person who programs the travel agency website, which is a more difficult and complicated skill. Or instead of being the person who's the bookkeeper, you write the accounting software for a company. Or there's the people who are doing sort of lower skilled work. And, and what they mean by lower skilled work is just that it doesn't require that much education. And so these are the kinds of things like customer service jobs, cleaning, this kind of face-to-face -face interaction, which is required, but often doesn't pay that much and is often not the best career opportunity. And so the idea of ultra learning is that obviously if the world is kind of accelerating and we're having this averages over effect going on in the economy, 
And the outcome of which is that the good jobs, the ones that you really want, are harder. They're more difficult. They require more knowledge, more skills, more education. That if this is happening, and especially the fact that at the same time, getting an education, the sort of traditional route, is becoming more and more expensive. So if you aren't 100% sure it's going to pay off, it's often a very risk- risky financial decision to take out a bunch of student loans to you know, get a degree in something that isn't clear whether it's going to pay off for you. That if you have the ability to teach yourself these skills, to be able to become good at programming, become good at writing, public speaking, these kinds of advanced skills that are becoming more lucrative and, and becoming more prominent, then you really have the ability to thrive and survive in this new economy and this new economic situation. And so the idea behind ultra learning is that I think that this idea of taking the initiative on your own to learn hard skills was probably something that, you know, yeah, in 50 years ago, if you were sort of really dedicated and unusual, maybe it would matter. But for most people, I mean, you could get a good job without it. Whereas I think in the future, it's going to increasingly be, if you aren't doing this, if you aren't really taking control of your own education and learning new skills, you're going to be left behind. So that's the shift that's happening. And I think it's going to be a rude wake-up call for a lot of people who really have not thought that much about taking their skills and keeping them sharp. Yeah, I love that. And this is why it's so important because especially for um, typically people in this country who have been marginalized, discriminated against, or just who are um, underserved, like this is the power that they can take back. So I look at like my life and, you know, one of the biggest things for my mom coming here, she's um, Jamaican. So she came here with like nothing to the United States and she had me, but she always like pushed education and it was a standard education, but and we'll get to kind of like raising like ultra learners as kids, you know, like since, you know, I'm a mom myself. So it's like I kind of want to have kids who who are inquisitive and, and want to learn outside the box. I recognize the reason why I've made it to where I made it wasn't just because of like the traditional education like that helped because I took that seriously enough to get good grades. But because that outside of that, I've I've always been inquisitive and, and gone after and learned things and did things. So not just like learned it by like looking at it and say, well, that'd be nice. But I actually like just jumped feet in like, you know what, I want to start like a podcast, I want to start a blog, I'm just going to do it right. Like instead of like sitting back, and just like waiting, this type of um, information is so key and important for people to hear. Because this is how you begin to change like the trajectory of wealth for yourself. And, you know, it's not necessarily like you're just doing this to become rich or wealthy initially, right? But you being your own best asset in this world, like, right, like despite the stock markets or whatever they do, you being like the most important asset you ever have, your brain, your skill set, investing in that makes you beyond wealthy, right? In the, in the normal sense. And this is what allows you to reach freedom, financial freedom. So, yeah. You know what, you said something that I think I wanted to touch on a little bit because I think it's so important that, you know, sometimes when I talk about some of these projects, particularly some of these extreme examples, you know, a common critique is, well, who has the time or money to do that? Like, in other words, this is something that you must have a lot of privilege to be able to do. But I actually think it's the opposite because when you look at what you have to do to succeed in the traditional education system, it is the most expensive, it is the most time consuming possible process. Now, I mean, you can get student loans, which can offset that, but then you have to pay them back, right? That means that's creating a future burden on your financial. So this is moving you further away from financial independence. And so I was having a conversation with uh, a gentleman, he was telling me a bit about his life story. And, you know, he was orphaned, and he was kind of in the foster care system, and really in sort of a rough environment, moving around from house to house, being shuttled around. 
And he now is working with, I think he's working with IDEO doing sort of like advanced machine learning overlapping with neuroscience with some kind of research team. But he was telling me that he doesn't have more than a high school education. And that the way he was able to do this is when he was starting, you know, he, he couldn't go to college. He didn't have the funds for it. He decided that he was going to learn some programming and he started doing freelance programming on the side. And that was sort of what kicked off his career trajectory. And so for me, it's stories like that of people who are saying, you know what, the existing system is broken and it doesn't work for me and I can't afford it and I can't, you know, place that future burden on my finances, on my my family's finances, but I still need to be able to compete. I still need to be able to have the skills that people are willing to pay for. And so I think in many ways, taking your self-education seriously is the thing that you have to do if you are in a difficult situation, that it's the option that has more flexibility and more options than the traditional route. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm glad you brought that point. And now, so the quote comes back to me. I still forgot who said it, but it goes, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. And then I like to just tack on self-education will allow you ultimate freedom because once you have that, you really can start to go after like the goals that you set for yourself. And even if it's not like somebody might say to themselves, well, I'm not, I'm nowhere near interested in like computer programming, but this applies to anything. If you wanted to speak, you have an example of someone who wanted to do public speaking, but instead of just like reading books about it, like what he did, he just went and he pub like he did speeches. Oh, and he really, yeah, he really did speeches. Like he was doing, you know, so many speeches, but that not only allowed him to get better at public speaking, he affected a complete career change. So now he's a public speaking coach and he has five figure clients. And, you know, he is an actual business now that wouldn't have been possible if he hadn't done that kind of project. So yeah, definitely don't get in your mind. This is only about programming, although programming is a popular example, really any skill, any skill that could get you forward in your career. Yeah. And life. Yeah. This is awesome. So the last thing I just want to end on just because as a mom, I'm like, I read the books. I know. And like nowadays it's like, well, you can't depend on the school system to teach your children, right? You have to, what you want from them is to be inquisitive and to encourage like this also self-learning. So what have you found through your research is the best way to help us raise ultra learners where they have this natural want to learn? Well, I don't have children uh, yet, not yet at least. And so uh, I'm sure everyone who has children right now is just really eager to hear what this childless man has to say about <laughs> raising their kid. Take this with a grain of salt. Don't take this as uh, as me speaking from a position of authority. But what I think is often missing in the education system is that we often don't give children enough autonomy to make their own decisions. And we don't give them experience making their own decisions when it comes to projects they want to pursue and things they want to get good at and learn. And this isn't to say that every child's decision about what they want to get good at is necessarily going to be reflective of the most useful thing. You know, maybe this kid really wants to learn about, you know, video games or, or they really want to learn about like makeup or something. And maybe that's not going to be the thing that you really want them to be studying. But at the same time, I think giving children that kind of flexibility where you can not only encourage that sort of self-initiated behavior, but give them tools, give them help. They don't have the same benefit of life experience that you do to kind of structure and work on these kinds of efforts. That if, if you can help them and help foster that desire, I think that is the most important tool you can teach someone is to give them the confidence and ability to say, oh, yeah, anything that I pick that I want to learn and get good at, I can just do it if I put my mind to it. Even if when they're younger, when they're teenagers, when they're smaller children, they don't necessarily have the same values and goals to learn the same kinds of things that you would like them to learn. 
they will at some point be in their career, be in their their professional lives where maybe those incentives do push them to say, hey, you know what, actually, maybe it would make sense to learn this professionally motivated skill or to learn this skill that's actually going to improve my career or my business. And so if you can give them those tools, then they won't have to feel like they're starting from scratch. And I feel like so many of us, you know, we've spent our entire time in this kind of isolated, sterile education environment where we never make any decisions about what to learn. And someone else is always there to hold our hand and tell us what to do. And so naturally, when the time comes to learn skills on our own, there's quite a few people who kind of panic and say things like, oh, well, I I didn't go to school for that, so I can't learn that. And I think that that's really unfortunate. Yeah. And, you know, I, I I do appreciate this because as you're talking, even if you like my kids are pretty young, they're five, three and one. And my oldest is obsessed like with YouTube. And so we try to like limit that. But even thinking about, OK, maybe a summer project for him is helping him like start his like YouTube channel, which doesn't have to even be seen by anyone. Right. It could just be private, but helping him map out like, OK, what is he going to talk about, things he's going to do and like create it into a fun project for him. And then allowing him some free reign to like do it and like he can record it and watch his own video and how cool that would be for him. Right. Like that's the kind of small things you can start doing with your children. You know, and and that's that's the thing. I think we often underestimate children. We underestimate their ability to kind of make decisions as individuals and stuff just because their viewpoint and their decisions aren't always coming from the same perspective that that ours are. I, I certainly remember being younger and being a child and what I thought was important back then was not necessarily what my parents thought were important. And it's not because, you know, it's not because my parents were wrong, but it's just because when you're in that limited viewpoint, you are making decisions, you just don't have all the information. And so I think sometimes if we can respect that and and give children the power to make their own choices to do improve their lives, that is a sort of meta tool that will help them down the road a lot more than let's say, well, you just do as I tell you your whole life. And then, then they get to a point where no one's telling them what to do anymore and they kind of flounder. Right, right. That's great. All right, Scott. So please tell everyone where they can find out more about you, get your book, and then maybe follow up with some of the stuff that you have going on. Yeah, absolutely. So I highly recommend people checking out my website. It's scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And there I have um, not only over a thousand articles about personal development and habits and goal setting and of course, learning. I also have my own uh, small podcast where I have uh, audio versions of a lot of the ideas that I have. So if you prefer to listen, you can get that. And then also there's links to my book, uh, Ultra Learning. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. It also has an audible version, again, if you prefer to listen to your books and it's narrated by me. Okay, awesome, awesome. I'll get some of that and put it in the episode show notes for people. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, I really, really hoped you enjoyed that episode. And if anything, if you got nothing from the conversation that you got the importance and the way in which you can have complete control over your education and it doesn't have to stop based on like what you were told that you had to learn, like you literally can learn anything, especially nowadays with the internet and all the access to information that we have. I literally feel like there's no excuse nowadays for people not to be able to learn something. And I thought it was pretty cool. Like, you know, he mentioned getting his almost MIT degree, like not officially, obviously, but being able to learn what the kids at MIT were learning because they put the lessons online. That's possible and available to you. It's just about really how bad you want to learn and how bad you want it. 
So I think this is also especially important for parents. I often think about how I can help encourage my kids to be life learners, not just it stops in the classroom, uh, because really that is the key to wealth. That is the key to success, learning and asking questions. So thanks, Scott, for coming on. And if you want the episode show notes, remember this is episode 128. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 128. As always, I'm on social media everywhere. <laughs> I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Journey to Launch. So at Journey to Launch. So make sure you're following me. You're keeping up to date. You're sharing any big takeaways or ahas that you have from the episode. I love hearing from you because literally I say this and I mean it. It keeps me going. I'm like, all right, I'm sitting here in my kitchen right now talking to myself. And I know when this gets published, you guys are going to hear it. But I love to see like when it goes out, like, oh, they did hear it and they liked it or maybe they didn't like it. But if you liked it, let me know. I'd rather hear if you liked it. (laughs) That just helps me continue to know, like, keep going. This is what the people need. This is what the journeyers need. Now, again, hope you're enjoying your Thanksgiving or your Thanksgiving break if you're on one. And I'll speak to you next week. So until then, keep on journeying, journeyers. (laughs) 